Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. The Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, HSPA, invites you to log on, listen and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This Podcast. This is episode number 88. Hey, thanks for joining me today. Today, I have an exciting show. We're speaking to Brian Flanagan from Phygenics, and we're talking about the hopefully soon to be released, sooner, hopefully, rather than later, Amy ST108, water quality for reprocessing of medical devices. So some great information from Brian. But before we talk to Brian, we're going to get into the segment, What's on My Mind. All right, so we have another segment of What's on My Mind. Now, in this segment, we are going to look at an article from Healthcare Purchasing News. Now, the title of this article is TRSA Gains Legislator Support for Increased Reusable Textiles in Healthcare Facilities. And this came out June 20th of 2023. You might be asking, what is TRSA? I had to look it up myself. TRSA is a company that represents the supply laundering and maintains linens and uniforms. Their members help businesses, retails, healthcare facilities, restaurants, governments, and other organizations enhance their image and provide clean and safe environments for their employees and customers. So essentially they represent the reusable textile companies. So the article reads, TRSA, the Association for Linen, Uniform, and Facility Service Providers, has secured the signatures of U.S. Representatives Greg Landsman and Michael Carey as the chief co-signers to a letter to the Department of Health and Human Resources Secretary Xavier Berkera. I hope I'm saying that right. But this letter is requesting that the secretary examine the feasibility and potential benefits of the increased use of reusable healthcare textiles in hospitals and other medical facilities to protect coworkers while addressing the rising environmental impact of disposables, prepare for future pandemics and potentially provide cost savings. So this letter is a major step in developing federal policy to require healthcare facilities to maintain an operating stock of reusable healthcare textiles. Now this is a huge win for these folks, says the vice president of the TRSA, because the secretary will be compelled to respond to a congressional inquiry, which usually leads to a form of some form of federal policy being either legislation or regulation. Now, this letter is the culmination of groundwork laid during TRSA's 
Legislative Conference in March, where the TRSA members invited congressional officials to request legislators to sign on to this letter. And then while securing the chief co-signers was a major step, the TRSA members now need to contact their respective legislators to get them to add their name to the letter. The more names on the letter, the more impact the letter will have to the Department of Health and Human Services. So this, along with the legislation introduced in New York requiring healthcare facilities to maintain 50% operating stock of reusable textiles, this letter is another victory for the TRSA members and reusable healthcare textiles. So interesting article, and I also have the letter to the actual secretary, and I'm going to read that as well. So it says we, and we, I'm assuming it's the TRSA, write to request that you examine the feasibility and potential benefits of the increased use of reusable healthcare textiles in hospitals and other medical facilities to protect healthcare workers, address the rising environmental impact of disposables, prepare for future pandemics, and potentially provide cost savings. It goes on to say the COVID-19 pandemic revealed pre-existing problems and weaknesses in the healthcare system. Early in the pandemic, media reports across the country depicted makeshift alternatives to isolation cover gowns and masks, including nurses wearing trash bags and raincoats over their scrubs and using snorkels as facial coverings. This was due to the widespread shortages in disposable products including personal protective equipment, PPE. In the summer of 2020, the American Nursing Association found that 42% of U.S. nurses were experiencing widespread or intermittent PPE shortages, with 68% reusing PPE that was disposable or intended for single use. Patient and providers suffer when demand for personal protective equipment is not met with enough supply. In the United States, more than 90% of healthcare PPE and operating room textiles are single-use, even through ample supplies of reusable equivalents are available. By comparison, other countries such as Canada and the United Kingdom maintain inventories of 80% reusable healthcare textiles. Studies have found that reusable textiles are every bit as safe, if not safer, than their disposable substitutes. One-and-done disposable textile substitutes contribute significantly to the medical waste, which was exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Between March 2020 and November 2021, approximately 78,000 tons of PPE were shipped worldwide in response to the COVID-19. Most of these goods ended up as waste. Alternatively, one reusable gown can replace 75 single-use disposable gowns. Life cycle assessments show that selecting reusable over disposable substitutes result in significant environmental benefits, such as reductions in energy consumption, greenhouse emissions, water consumption, and solid waste generation. For example, disposables generate far more solid waste than reusables, 705 pounds per 1,000 gallons, compared with 83 pounds, a 750% margin. 
So the TRSA, they believe that increasing the use of reusable healthcare textiles could ensure that the United States is better prepared for future pandemics while reducing environmental impacts of single-use equipment and potentially provide cost savings. They request that the Department of Health and Human Services and the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health conduct a study of potential benefits and feasibility of increasing the use of reusable textiles and any potential savings that would be gained through the use of reusable textiles. In addition, they are requesting that the Health and Human Resource Services examine ways to encourage healthcare facilities to integrate more reusable healthcare textiles. They ask the results of this review be shared with uh, the Congressional Committee. So this is an interesting article. I mean, it sounds like if you were a textile company, you would be in full support of this because it just means more money for you. Let's not forget that. But again, an interesting article. So how would this impact your department? If you had to use 50% of your stock, lose 50% of your single use and replace that with reusable, what would it mean to your department if you had to start using reusable tray wrappers? Those are textiles as well, right? So some food for thought on this article. Look for more in the future about textiles and this new potential legislation. So for that, that's going to do it for this segment of What's On My Mind. So our guest today is Brian Flanagan, and Brian is a veteran water industry professional with over 40 years of experience. Brian is currently working with Phygenics LLC as a subject matter expert for non-potable water system safety and efficiency. He has worked with healthcare, hospitality, and institutional clients in the U.S. and Canada. In addition to authoring numerous ANSI, ASHRAE, 188-2015, Align Comprehensive Water Management Programs, he has developed innovative applications of ANSI ASHRAE 188-2015 to support sterile processing water safety and quality, as well as oversight of HVAC utility water systems. Flanagan is a principal of Phygenics LLC, an independent provider of water management program services. In addition to program development, Phygenics provides continued support of water management programs by providing independent verification and validation services. Well, Brian, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Great to be here, John. Thanks for the invitation. So, Amy TIR34, the Water for Reprocessing of Medical Devices, is being converted into a standard, and that's ST108. Now, I know that you have been a part of this process and a big part of it. And so, first of all, thank you for that. Uh, but for our listeners, can you explain why the TIR is being converted and what is the potential impact for folks in sterile processing? Uh, great question, John, and one that we're being asked frequently as we're drawing closer to the standard maybe actually being published, uh, which we're thinking might be later this summer or early fall. 
first thing I'd like to sh- suggest with you is that one of the things that uh, we've decided is that we've pretty much removed the term reprocessing from our languages. Okay. Uh, specifically, we, we're going to use the word processing. It's not a matter of reprocessing, we're processing. So you're going to see that change in SD-108. That begins to answer why we have gone to a standard. Obviously, it's part of the AMI process to start with a technical information report when they want to get guidance and help out to a a community, a user community quickly. Uh, It doesn't require consensus. It doesn't require anything other than just really great opinion and good, solid, hopefully, recommendations as to how to operate. Um, So the normal process is once a TIR is uh, created, you review it and you make sure that the things that you have said and you've recommended are accurate. And then you also listen to the user community at the same time in terms of what else do we need to know regarding what you told us the first time. So much of why it's becoming a standard is because it's the normal process that Amy uses to be able to get information and guidance out to its community. There are some very specific things, though, that they're hoping to, uh, we're hoping to achieve as a result of the standard. And one is, is that we realized that in spite of TIR 34, a lot of people hadn't gone to the extent of actually testing their water to know what their water quality and and and, and so on was. Mm-hmm. And ST-108 makes it very clear that that testing must be done. It's, it's, it's done as a best practice. It's done so that you really understand whether you're meeting the critical and utility water requirements that the document recommends. So there's definitely a, a focus on making sure you have an awareness of what your water quality is. And then the last thing is, is that, um, and this is kind of through the water management process that's being advocated, the recognition that this is not something you're going to do on your own. It's a team effort. It's, it's something that's going to that's likely require other people in the facility to help you be successful. Um, so those are probably the three reasons why it's going to a standard. So I know from serving on different AME committees that you're not really supposed to talk about the details of the new standard until that standard is published. But can you give kind of some examples of things that we can expect in this new standard? Absolutely. Um, and it's interesting the way the process works because the, the, the process requires public review of the documents. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the new ST-108 has been out on the street, so to speak, for people to look at and to provide uh, direct comment. Obviously, the team members, the WG95 team, has had several opportunities to review the document uh, uh, technically as well as even grammatically, but it's open to the public. It has been three different times and uh, recently finished its third public review and and uh, we're now in the process of hopefully getting the, the, the document approved and published. But uh, first of all, the, the reason I, I'm comfortable sharing with you uh, some of the details of ST-108 is it's largely a duplication of TIR-34. Okay. Uh, you shouldn't expect giant changes in, in, um, in the way Amy has approached guidance for water and sterile processing. Uh, many of the water quality requirements we had are the same as what they were in TIR 34. There is, however, an emphasis on water management. Um, that was the way the document is constructed. There's a normative section in the front and many appendixes in the back, which are informative. The way we talk about it, normative things you should be doing, okay, best practices, informative, good ideas, recommendations, not necessarily have to, but it kind of explains some of the front sections of the document. Well, in the TRR 34, the concept of having a water management team, um, and here I'm talking about teams again, um, (laughs) the the water management team was kind of in in an informative annex 
Well, it's been moved right to the front of the document, and it's okay. been recognized by organizations like ARN uh, as being very, very important in the overall success of the program. So um, uh, that's, those are a couple of changes. The other, you know, the tables, the water qualification tables have been di- divided into two areas, one in water qualification, which is whenever you build a new system or you have major plumbing changes and so on with your system versus routine testing. And this kind of becomes a clarification of what TIR 34 was trying to say, much more clearly stated. You could probably say that across the entire document. There's been a, a greater attempt to provide clarity to some of the things that, again, the user community came back to us and said, look, we don't really understand where you're headed here. Can you give us better guidance? So I recently heard a statement, and this was from a physician, that it's not necessary to use critical water for a final rinse. Can you kind of speak to the differences really between utility and critical water and why critical water is so important? Sure. And and I'm going to use a a really simple example that I think we all have experience with, and that's washing your car. For those of us who wash our cars, I mean, when we're washing it with soap and so on and so forth, it really wouldn't matter what water source we were using because the soap actually reacts with the water and then helps to remove dirt from the car and so on and so forth. But when we finish, when we want to take all the soap suds off of the car, we want to do it in a way where when it sits out in the sunlight, it doesn't spot, Mm. right? And and create discoloration. Well, the primary purpose for critical water in a sterile processing unit is to help remove all the final cleaning detergents and so on and so forth and use it with a water source that is pure enough that when it evaporates, it doesn't leave a, a mark or a skim or a color or anything like that. So critical waters is is going to be identified in ST108 as a must-have for final rinse. Oh, great. Okay. And I, and I know the folks in the committee are probably shuddering right now. I said, well, that's not exactly right. Well, <laughs> in general, that's where we're headed. And I'll invite you to read ST108 is, and, and all the qualifications around that. But we're making it very clear that you should be using a highly processed water, water without dissolved solids, water without bacteria, water for all intent and purposes with zero endotoxin. Uh, is required to final rinse the material and rinse the instrumentation prior to sterilization. So I have a confession. In most facilities that I've worked at, I really couldn't tell you if the facility was using critical water to generate their steam as their water source. Is that something that's, that is required? And what are the advantages and disadvantages of using a critical water in that capacity? Um, that's a that's a, a deep well that we could uh, <laughs> dive in together, John. Um, the reality of the matter is is that there are two sources of steam in, that most sterile processing facilities have an option for. Certainly in acute care hospitals, it's very common to have a plant steam system that is used for many purposes in the hospital, including heating of the building and so on and so forth. And oftentimes that plant steam system is used for sterile processing very successfully, by mm-hmm. the way. Uh, it's very unlikely that they would be using water that would meet critical water quality as their feed water or their makeup. Understand critical water is defined as a specific water quality. Mm. And in sterile processing, it happens to be tied primarily to final rinse. But in some sterile processing departments where they decide to have localized generated steam, either through a boiler or heat exchanger, they'll often tap into the critical water as the feed water source because it's such a high purity water source. It pretty much guarantees a high purity steam. Okay. There are definitely design considerations that have to be considered to doing that though. The the boiler system or heat exchange system that you're using would have to be compatible with critical water. 
is that one of the problems with critical waters, it's so pure, it spends a whole lot of time trying to dissolve everything it comes in contact with. So typically in a sterile processing area, critical water is in plastic pipes. So it would never suffice for steam production or steam transportation and so on and so forth. So even in those cases, you have to be careful what your feed water source is. But I will tell you that the newer designs, the newer considerations they're making in sterile processing, especially if you're going to go to the expense of having localized steam generation, they are certainly building and designing so that critical water could actually be your makeup water source. So I have another confession. I've never had a water management program at the facility that I've worked at. Now, granted, I've been out of practice for a few years. Can you kind of walk me through a typical water management program and how it can be beneficial? All these confessions, I feel like I ought to be in a booth. <laughs> um, John, since 2017, thanks to CMS, um, healthcare facilities, specifically acute care healthcare facilities, have had to have a water management program for their facility. So um, you can go back to 2015 when ASHRAE 188 was first created. It was really after CMS kind of said, look, you know, you need to have this and we're going to actually check up on you through our accreditation surveys and so on and so forth, that pretty much after 2017, it would be very unusual that you didn't have a water management program. They're using ASHRAE 188, even CMS notes in, in their their documentation. The CDC, who has followed along with their recommendations for water management, have also referenced ASHRAE 188 as being the foundation for how you should do that. And ASHRAE 188 is really a risk management process. It involves seven steps, uh, starting with forming a team. Again, it starts with forming the right team, yeah. but then it goes through a, a risk management process where you understand how your system is actually designed, what types of water you're using, where you're using it, the concerns you have over how that water could potentially impact you. So it's a bit of a risk analysis. You establish program controls. What are you going to do? A lot of those program controls are pro preventative maintenance types of activities. But what are you going to do with the equipment that you're literally using to produce your water? And then, quite frankly, you monitor that equipment over time. Verify on occasion that you're doing what you said you were going to do in terms That's of right. operations and maintenance. And then you validate. You grab some water samples on some frequency to be able to determine that the water is meeting the quality that this whole system was designed. Um, one of the biggest, I think, misperceptions is around validation. It's not just about whether or not you're meeting the goals or not. It's about validating that your system and the processes that you have in place are producing what you expect. Okay, gotcha. It's a little bit different way to look at validation as opposed to, do I have bugs in my water or not? Yeah. You mentioned teams. And water management, it's not just the responsibility of sterile processing. Can you give some examples of the other folks who should be involved in your water management program? Sure, sure. And I'm going to answer two ways, John. One is, is I'm going to invite you that if you don't know who is running your water management team at your hospital, go introduce yourself. Because the most efficient way for you to get the help you need is to join that team. Okay. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have that team, or for whatever reason you don't feel welcome to go talk to them, then you should be thinking about at least two other people. I'm assuming you're the sterile processing lead. You should be thinking about having facilities management and infection prevention on your team. Okay. That, that group, that trio, is absolutely critical for you to be able to implement ST-108 with, with precision and, and also efficiency. Now, there's this other person like the executive uh, on the team that can help approve budgets and approve 
um, perhaps multi-disciplinary you know, activity across the hospital. They're pretty important too. But in terms of the true actors on the team, it's facilities management and infection prevention with you. So in your opinion, do you think poor water quality is a safety hazard? And if so, why? Again, great question. And, and I'm going to answer it maybe a bit nebulous, but I'm going to answer it this way anyway. I'm going to say it can be, okay, but there's no guarantee that it is. Okay. It, it most definitely can be. It can definitely be a safety hazard. Um, ST-108 is written in a way where they're asking you to take the steps necessary to prevent water from being a problem. So it's a prevention strategy. It's a strategy that if you deploy these activities, if you meet these levels of water quality, then you can feel pretty assured, as long as you're documenting it and you can defend yourself, mm -hmm. that you're not going to be inhibited. Your, your operation will not be limited by water quality. And that includes not just the utility water, which a lot of people refer to tap water incorrectly. Tap water, <laughs> maybe your, your, your utility water may not be, but critical water, utility water, as well as steam. Okay, all three of them are water sources. Hey guys, let's pause our conversation for just a second. Are you looking to get a CE for this episode? Well, you, my friend, are in the right place. To receive a CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes. Make sure you log on to the MyHSPA website and use the code TIR34. Again, the code for this specific episode is tir 34. Now, let's get back to our conversation. If there's a listener listening now, who currently does not have any type of water management in their facility, what would you recommend be their first step? Well, again, it's to pull that team together. The, the, the sterile processing professional, the infection prevention professional, and your facility manager. If you can orchestrate um, a meeting with them to explain to them what you know, which is that there's a standard coming for how water should be managed in the area of sterile processing, I would bring that team together and make sure there's an awareness. Okay, And then quite frankly, if everyone kind of looks at one another and says, well, I'm not ready to handle that, I would, I'd seek help. There are a lot of people out there willing to help you understand how to apply this to your system. Um, you know, I've been involved with sterile processing for, you know, intimately for the last six years. I've probably been in 300 different SPD facilities myself. I'm still waiting to find the two that are exactly alike. <laughs> okay. So yeah. you need to know you've got a unique facility. You're going to have to approach your facility with what you have, with your water sources, with the way you manage that water in the building, with the way the water is managed before it gets to you in the building, how you manage it after you get it. That's all going to be unique to you. And Having help organize all that is certainly something I would highly recommend if it's just the three of you getting started. Great. Great. So last question, is there any uh, advice, any other advice that you would like to share with our folks as we patiently wait for ST-108 to be published? Sure. And I'm going to probably repeat myself a little bit, no. but that's okay. Um, number one, I'd contact your local water management team. Uh, I, again, my experience here um, is that Water management teams have been formed, how active they are and so on. You will learn by contacting the water management team chairman. But contact your water management team and make them aware that you know that there's a water standard coming for sterile processing and you'd like to have help. That, If there was the, the one and only thing you were going to do, that's, that's where I would start. The other thing I would do, though, is in preparation for that, I start collecting any evidence that you have in sterile processing that you think might be related to water or water quality. 
Okay, and it could be things like you know instrumentation that's stained, uh, acknowledging that some percentage of your instrumentation gets tossed by the doctors on a routine basis. Um, it could be something like maintenance. You know, we have to clean this doggone thing once a week. There's got to be a better way. And, and maybe water is actually contributing to these, the staining and the and scaling I'm mm-hmm. seeing on the inside of my washer disinfectors. But collect anything that you have in terms of evidence that might be related to what you think would be water. And then, you know, last but not least, this is for anybody who's considering a renovation or replacement of equipment and so on and so forth. Make sure that your engineers and construction partners are aware of the ST-108 standard coming. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times in the last year that I have come across brand new systems being installed that when we challenge them, well, this really isn't what you're going to need to meet the standard that the equipment manufacturer said, I wasn't being held to any standard. Okay. Mm. And, and so make sure that those, that the standard is prominent and it's known amongst your engineering and, and, and any support personnel contractors that may be doing work for you, that this is something you want to be prepared to meet. Well, great. Thank you for that advice. And thank you for joining us on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, John, as always. Well, folks, that music can mean only one thing, and I'm sorry to say that we are out of time for today. A big thank you to Brian and the folks from Phygenics for sharing with us today. And that means that HSPA, this episode, episode number 88, is now in the books. In case you didn't know, each episode that we do is on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy. And we'll see you next time.